All right, it's an honor to be with you today. Uh, I just retired after 46 years. I was in San Antonio pastoring for the last nearly 30 years. And uh, my wife wanted to come today, but she just got hired to be the pianist at North Richland Hills Baptist Church, where we attend. So for her, it's been good because she's been a pianist since she was about 13 years of age when she was at the First White Settlement Baptist Church many years ago. And so I retired in January. We moved to Fort Worth take care of my father-in-law who was 96 lived by himself still smarter than everybody in the room combined in fact he would about ran us ragged for the last eight months uh, we'd run we live on the east side of Fort Worth he lives on the west side we'd run over and buy his groceries and take him grocery shopping I learned the secret to longevity while I would take him grocery shopping you'd look in his cart and he would have Oreos bluebells cinnamon buns donuts biscuits and gravy and that's what he lived on so if you want to live long I encourage you that's a good good diet my doctor doesn't like it but evidently it worked for for Jimmy and then we'd get almost back to our home 23 miles from him and he would call and said you forgot this at the grocery store so Janet would say my wife would say well we'll get it tomorrow the next day I may be dead by then you need to come get it now so, but for my wife and I, it's been quite a change after being in San Antonio for 30 years. My father-in-law passed away just a couple weeks ago at the age of 96. He had a, an amazing life. Iwo Jima Marine, Guam, Okinawa, hard combat, toughest, nicest man I've ever met in my life. I lost my father just recently too at the age of 90. And so we're both blessed to be in Fort Worth now, but we're adjusting to our new life. And I pastored Village Parkway for uh, 29 years and 46 years in total ministry. I was uh, chairman of the board of Life Choices Medical Center. I had, we started years ago, our own women's clinic. We saw 7,000 women a year. We saved over 3,000 babies from abortion just the last five years alone at our center. And interesting fact, because of all that's happened with Roe v. Wade, I learned this, I was just in San Antonio the other day, Planned Parenthood cannot operate in San Antonio now because they cannot do abortions, but the, what they are doing is they're recommending all their patients come to my clinic in San Antonio to get their sonograms and then come back and they send them to New Mexico to get their abortions. And we're getting the opportunity to share the gospel and life with the young ladies and we're having a significant impact that they had no idea would happen when they send them to us. So that's been one of the great things I've been privileged to do. So whenever we moved to Fort Worth, took a couple of months to get settled. I, my grandson plays football for Thesa Riders. Uh, he is a linebacker for them. And I went out to watch uh, spring practice. And the head coach of Thesa, it's a homeschool group, but we play public schools and uh, six-man football. And so I'd gone out to watch them. And uh, coach walked up to me and said, uh, you're going to coach this year? I said, No. He said, yes, you will. I said, I'm a preacher. 46 years in the pulpit, I've never coached. And uh, he said, we'll only have one qualification. I said, what's your qualification? Do you love Jesus? What do you expect a preacher to say at that moment? <laughs> I said, yes. He said, then you're qualified. I said, they don't want you to tell me that mid-season when the parents in the stands don't like me because I didn't play their son enough out on the field. And he said, oh, you'll get through it. Don't worry about it. Well, 
I became head coach of the JV. Now, I played football in high school. Uh, I was five foot four and 120 when I graduated high school. So some of you short guys out there, hang in there. There's a chance. <laughs> I played rugby for Lamar University. And you got to be stupid to play that game. But I did play a little bit of rugby, but I had never coached. And so I got out there, and I was really worried about my boys because these are good kids. They're good football players, tough as nails and stuff, and I've never done it. But we end up seven wins, three losses. Uh, we, they moved me up to varsity because we did so well. And two weeks ago, our starting quarterback got hurt. The offensive coordinator was his son. The kid got hurt pretty bad. And so he left. He turned around and handed me the plays and says, you got the rest of the game. I've never done that. I've never called offensive plays ever in my life. And we're winning 13 to 6, and we have to win for playoffs. So I pulled the varsity. Not the smartest move you'd ever do, but I pulled my varsity. I put my JV black in, which is what we call our team. I put six of them in there, and we scored five unanswered touchdowns. So I now have a new name. I am Coach Grandpa. <laughs> so we played this Friday night for the semifinals against a team from Austin. So I'm, I never thought I'd ever do anything like this, but I've been having a blast. So, all right, I want you to take your Bibles now. I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 16 through 18. Very simple verse. In fact, they're almost little platitudes you put on your walls in your house as something to have a nice little scripture on the wall to be able to use. But I really want to look at it in a way today that might have a little bit more of an impact on us than we normally would do. Uh, it dawned on me just before I got up, this is the first Thanksgiving in quite a while that COVID hadn't affected everything we were doing. Last Thanksgiving was still very bad in San Antonio. I buried several church members. I had one lady who lost five family members to COVID that had gone to dinner last summer. They all got sick and I, had to, I did two of the funerals for them. I buried two of their family members because they could not afford the funerals, having five of them all at one time. And so it was very difficult. I even caught COVID, my wife and I, and didn't have it super bad, but uh, it took a toll on us. That's why I retired in January. I was just exhausted, but I've finally recovered from it and going full blast again. But it, it had a profound impact. And even last Thanksgiving, we almost closed again because we had so many sick. My whole staff got wiped out. And so I was sitting there going, this is the first time in a while we just can get out and enjoy life. So I can't think of a better passage today going into Thanksgiving with all that's taken place over the last two years to help us to be able to remember how gracious and how good our God is. In fact, this should not be a difficult passage to fulfill, but yet after 46 years in ministry, I have rarely seen this fully fulfilled in people's lives in the church. I, you know, walk the halls like you do, and I listen to the griping and complaining of something that happened to you in life. I, I listen to people who say, well, my life just is not working out the way I want. Things are too hard and too difficult. And yet, do you not realize who we are? Do you not realize that you and I are the most blessed people in all the world who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior? Do you not realize that Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places and nothing can take that away from you? I just came back a couple weeks ago from Cuba. I made my ninth trip there. I'm, I'm working with the seminary in Havana with Barbara Morero, Dr. Morero, uh, as I'm mentoring him. The seminary here gave me that opportunity to do that. And I was with a group of men, and especially who have absolutely nothing. They live on $30 a month. 
30 a month. Try living here on 30 a month. It's similar to living in Cuba. You can't do it, and they can't either. Persecution's intense. Intense. They just passed a new family code where something I will say in a moment in the sermon, if I'm to say in Cuba, could end me up in jail. Preaching against immorality now is a crime in Cuba for the church as of three weeks ago. You hear craziness in America, they encoded it, all of it, in law there. And yet when I'm sitting there with, with them and we're in worship together, the singing stunned me. I mean, I was stunned. Cubans have a, something within their heart and soul anyway, but their singing is amazing. American worship is boring in, compla- in comparison to Cuban worship. In fact, I took my wife to, with me to Cuba one time and I'd come back every time and tell village, we need to step up our worship. We don't, you, can, you, you don't sing good. Well, I thought we were singing good till I went there. So my wife said, well, you're just, that's Steve just ministerially speaking. You know how preachers are. We make the story sound better than it really is till she went. And so she was teaching at the seminary, which she had never done in her life. And she asked the students, why do you sing? Steve came back from Cuba all over a time and says, I can't get over their worship. It's just amazing how they sing. One of the students raised her hand and says, it's the only way we can express ourselves and not go to jail. And so they sing from this heart filled with joy in a land that has no joy. So I want us to look at this passage. I don't know how you do it here, but I'm going to do it the way I've always done it. Would you stand with me as I read this passage? If everyone stand with your Bibles open, very simple. It says this in verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Verse 18, and everything give thanks. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Join with me as we pray. Father, it is a privilege and honor to be able to stand here in this pulpit in this church today here in Greenville and to be able to share from your word. But I pray, Father, that you'll speak to all of us in a very powerful way today. As we enter the Thanksgiving season, these are truths that need to be very much a part of our life every single moment of every single day as long as we walk on this earth. So help us to grasp the significance of all that is written here and may it impact our lives is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm gonna start with this. If I look at verse 18, what do I notice? This is the will of God. It's very strongly stated. It's one sentence. Your English may be broken down and maybe periods and commas and stuff, but in the Greek, it's one sentence, 16 through 18. So everything we just read is the will of God. Now, I want you to know something. It's always a struggle to try to figure out what the will of God is for most of us. But when we're doing that, what are we thinking about? Well, for me, last spring, do I coach or not coach? What if I ruin these boys' season because I don't know what's going on and I don't really understand the strategy in the game well enough? What happens if this messes up? And so I struggle that night trying to figure that out. For some of you, where am I going to go to college when I get out of high school? Who will I marry? And we're looking always for those kind of things. So we'll buy all kinds of books to find out what God's will is. Well, I want you to know something. That's not what you need to be hunting for. See, if you'd have told me that after 46 years I'd be on the sideline yesterday and 
Waco, Texas, in sleet and 33-degree weather, leading our football team, I'd have thought you're the craziest person on the earth. But in God's providence, he unfolded in my life this year to be able to make that a part of what I was doing, which leads me to Proverbs 16, 9, which simply says, the mind of man plans his way, but God directs our step. So a lot of times when we're thinking the will of God, we're wanting to know what our next step is. God very rarely ever tells you what the next step is. Let that sink in because we're always hunting for the next step. In fact, didn't Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about tomorrow, you got enough trouble today? Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, I will take care of everything that there is. So when we talk God's will, I'm not talking about what happens at lunch. I know what my schedule is today. I know what I do this evening when I get back to, to Fort Worth. I know what my schedule is tomorrow. I'll be at football practice. But there's no guarantee that unfolds. Because God's providence may have something in store I'm not even thinking about. So when I come down to this, what I want you to know is you can know the will of God, but it's in these areas. Now, you may not be able to realize this, but in the New Testament, there are six times that you can find the statement, this is the will of God. So what I'm going to tell you is over these next six, three of them are in our passage, three of them are other locations, that when you leave today, you can know exactly what God's will is for your life. And if you were to put these six things into practice on a regular basis, your life would be profoundly different in all that you do. So let me give you three that are outside it, and then we'll get into the text of our passage. The first one is, and this jumps out and it makes total sense to you, being in a Baptist church and attending worship. But in John 6, it says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. You already know that is the key will of God in our life. You have to come to the point in your life that you confess that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God, that he lived, he died, and was resurrected and sits at the right-hand throne of the Father. It's Romans 10, 9, and 10, very clearly stated out. That is God's will. And in the day in which we live, there are a lot of people who really don't think that's important anymore. But the will of God is still very much at work every single day. And every person who's willing to stand boldly and say, I trust in who Jesus is, and I'm not ashamed of who he is. See, I think we're living in a day-to-day in which a lot of the people sitting in the pews of the church are a little bit ashamed of the gospel, and we're really afraid to say too much when we get out of here. In fact, I think a lot of times the culture doesn't need to worry about us because we're awful quiet when we're out there about who we believe and what we walk with. You say, well, you know, I think I'd do a pretty good job. Listen, years ago, in 2013, one of my soldiers, military church, one of the finest soldiers you've ever seen in the United States Air Force, Dr. Philip Monk, was at work one day and his commander, who was a lesbian, transvestite, who had been given up just a promotion, said, you have to agree with me on what I believe. And he looked at her and said, I have a deeply held religious belief. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that marriage is between a man and a woman. And she destroyed his career. I end up defending him in the, across the nation, literally. It, it went crazy. But he and I had some really interesting observations at that particular point when you become a national story. A lot of our family and friends would go, listen, you keep standing. We're real glad you're standing. And then they'd pull back. Sergeant Monk would get emails from all over the military. We're proud of you, man, for standing against the military, which you don't do that. Because of his faith in Christ, he would take the stand, but they wouldn't stand with him. Nobody would publicly stand with him. 
That's, you know, when Paul's writing Timothy and he's telling Timothy, young man, I need you to do something for me in that second letter. I'm in jail as a criminal, so I'm looking bad to most of the world out there. But young man, here's what I need from you. I need you not to be ashamed of who Jesus is, and I need you not to be ashamed of who I am. I need you to be willing to stand and do that. See, that's the will of God, that you and I stand for Jesus Christ every day, publicly and privately. That is the will of God. When I get up today, that's what he wanted me to do, and I'm doing that as best I can today in your midst, sharing this great truth, but as I live my life. In fact, one of the great things about coaching football has been I lead my guys in Bible study. I know that's not good anymore, but we have Bible study for about 10 minutes before we begin practice. I have stopped a game and called a timeout in a huddle, said, let's pray. We're, we need to have some wisdom here of what to do next. I've been amazed how God has blessed that, but we cannot be ashamed. That's God's will. The second thing that is God's will is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and it says this, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You and I are maybe facing a day here soon where to say that sexual immorality is, is, is wrong and you're to walk in a morally pure way may become illegal. It's been battling. In fact, when I was doing this in 2013 and I'm on Fox and Friends, I was interviewed by Tucker Carlson. I said, this is a slippery slope. Little did I know how far we'd go down the hill in just the last eight or nine years. But you know what? God's will has never changed. What does he expect out of you every single day and out of me every single day? A morally pure life, according to his standards. The third thing, and I'm just lightly hitting these three, the third thing that he says is to honor, and this is in 1 Peter chapter 2, this is the will of God, that you honor everybody in authority above you. Everyone, every day, who has authority above us, we're to show honor to. Honor is one of the greatest things you can do. And we live in such a politically divisive world now to levels I can't even fathom in this country. And yet we're to show honor. When I'm with the Cubans, they show honor to the communist government, even though they totally disagree with it. They do not speak in a disrespectful way. They speak in a way that honors those who have authority above. Would they love a change? Yes, they would give anything for a change, but they're not allowed to. It'll never happen. And when they tried last summer, they were beaten so badly that now they pretty much have given up. But when they stand up and they live their life, you'll not hear a negative one thing about anything around them. See, those are specifically the will of God. See, I don't know what happens to Steve tomorrow. I have no idea how my life will unfold in the days ahead. You know, I don't know if my mom died at 70. I'll be 70 here soon. I take after my mom. I don't know if I have one year left. Or if I live like my dad to the age of 90, I have no control over any of that. But I do know this. I know what God wants from me today. He wants me to trust in Christ and not be ashamed of who he is. He wants me to live a morally pure life, staying deeply committed to my wife, Jan, of 47 years. And he wants me to be respectful to all who are in authority above me. But now we get into our passage. So what's the first thing he tells us to do in our passage? Because this is the will of God. So the will of God for you is to be joyful. That seems like something trite. You can understand how we deal with government, how we deal with morality and Jesus. Do not underestimate how important these next three things are. Joy. This is a command. This is not an option. You're commanded to be joyful. And the Thessalonians are. He's already said that to them in the first chapter. He told them that their joy in the midst of intense persecution has been amazing. And it's It's real. And, and joy is part of the, the fruit of the Spirit. If you have the fullness of God in you and you're filled with the Spirit of God, the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So joy should characterize everything that happens within your life. But the trouble with us is our joy comes from experience more than it comes from truth. The other day in the game, whenever I pulled the varsity and put in the JV to finish the varsity game, and we scored five touchdowns, I went to a spread offense in the midst of a rainstorm, and we completed five touchdown passes in the midst of a rainstorm. Crazy call, but it worked, and I thought it might work. But you should have seen, in fact, one of the varsity parents yesterday said, you guys on the sideline were having so much fun. It was amazing. That's where I got the Coach Grandpa name was out of that particular game. I said, but the kids, these are JV guys on varsity level in a playoff game, saving the game for the varsity. I even, JP, caught a touchdown pass, seven-yard touchdown pass. He caught it. He's my best player on the JV this year. He scored 20, 30 times this year, but he scored his first varsity touchdown, and he was jumping up and down like a kid in a candy store. He came running off the field, and he was going crazy because he scored a touchdown on the varsity. I grabbed him by his shoulder pads, pulled him in, and I said, quit acting like that's your first time in the end zone. Let's grow up now. Get back out there. But he was excited. I understand why he was excited, because we're joyful when things go the way we want them to, when something amazing happens. Uh, we're, We're joyful when our grandkids do good or our children turn out well in life. My dad, I was speaking in Oxford at university, and I was brought my dad with me. And so I was making my presentation at the Oxford Roundtable, and he was sitting there just beaming. I mean, I could see it on his face, how excited he was. Afterwards, I said, what was going on with you? He said, your mom and I thought you would never make it in life. (laughs) You made it. I said, okay, well, okay. So, you know, joyful moments like that, they're easy. Sometimes just sitting around with a cup of coffee and a good book. You just feel good about the day. So our joy comes from our experiences. What happens when our experiences are not good? What happens when the phone rings and you get tragic news? One of my staff members, he goes to the church we now attend in Fort Worth at North Richland Hills. He was on my staff about 20 years ago. He's 59 years of age, and he's a pianist. He's one of the greatest pianists I've ever heard in my entire life. And uh, I was talking to him. They have an auditorium that looks just like this at North Richland Hills. And we were sitting here just talking until a couple Wednesday nights ago. And he was doing good and healthy, and everything was fine, and he was enjoying his life and what he was doing now. And his kids are married, and he's got grandkids along the way, and he's looking forward to everything. And so we're doing that. On Friday, he was told he has stage 4 lymphoma, and he's fighting for his life today. You want a shock and a change in your life? You're going along at the age of 59 and life's good. And then suddenly everything that you hold and important and what you want to do and your dreams and everything else are completely robbed away from you. I'm watching that in Philip's life. But you know what? I was on his Facebook page the other day because his wife's been posting what's going on and my wife and I have been keeping very much in touch with him. But he posted this. You know, what I'm going through is tough and the chemo is unbelievably difficult. But my God is good. My God is at work. You ought to see how he, and he listed several things that have happened of God at work within his life. Instead of being destroyed by his situation, there's a joy there. Now, joy is not some giddiness, a super happiness or anything else. It's just a quiet, deep satisfaction in my heart. Life is good. But so instead of building ourselves on experiences, where does our joy come from? 
Well, first of all, Nehemiah says this, the joy of the Lord. So what is the joy of the Lord? Well, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And what does it say? You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And for that next, that's all one Greek sentence, so those 3 through 14, it begins to unfold that you've been adopted. You've been price paid, the blood of Christ. You have been given a living hope. You have been sealed with the Spirit of God. You have uh, been allowed to know the mystery of God's will. You've, you've had all these amazing things given to you by God, absolutely free, cost you absolutely nothing. And you know what? When I take Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and I apply that to my life, then what my circumstances are, whether they're exciting and good, like on a football field on a Friday night when it worked out well, or whether I'm in a hospital room as my friend was the other day, and he is told he has cancer, the truths of God's word have not changed. I'm still the most blessed person in all the room. Fact of the matter is, my dad died last September the 15th. I was sitting with him when he breathed his last. I was the only one in the room. I had gone up early that morning. We put him in the nursing home the night before because his health was so bad, and he only lasted a few hours in the nursing home. But I was sitting with him, and he breathed his last. It was on a Wednesday, and I went back to my church, and Wednesday's when all the senior adults are up at the church for all kinds of activities all day long. It's an all-day affair at Village Parkway. And I walked up, and they all came up, so sorry your dad died. But here's what they begin to say. Steve, it happened on your birthday. Your dad died on your birthday. That'll ruin your birthday. I couldn't believe they were saying that. You know what I said? It didn't ruin my birthday. What greater gift a father could give his son that when his father breathes his last, he enters the presence of God? You ever think of it that way? See, we think too often in experience terms, not in biblical terms. My God brought my dad home, my dad who had dementia. He knew me always to the end, but he couldn't remember things two minutes later. Now has a clear head. My mom, who had gone 15 years earlier, they're back together. When my father-in-law passed the other day, he entered the presence of God at 96. His body was weak and failed because of being 96 years of age. But suddenly, he's okay. He had said just a few months before, his wife's name was Kitty. She had been gone for nine years. He one day, I'm just sitting there quietly with him watching television. He said, Kitty thinks I'm in hell. I mean, that just came out of the blue. I totally, I had no idea where that was coming from. And I looked at him and said, well, what are you saying? He said, well, Kitty thinks I'm in hell. I said, why would she think that? He said, because I never did show up. <laughs> well, he did the other day. See, Joy comes when you know those kind of things. We can laugh and we can rejoice in these tough, difficult situations because we know something. We know who's in control. We know what the promises of God are. And we're the most blessed people in all the world. That joy needs to be a part of your life every single moment of every single day. Not dictated by what goes wrong this afternoon, but dictated by no matter what goes wrong, my God's still alive and on his throne and I'm going to be all right. Romans 8, 28 is either true or it's not. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That is either true or it's not. I believe it's true. So everything that happens to Steve Branson 
God makes something good come out of that. How can I not live in joy every single moment knowing if he takes the most difficult circumstance and situation and uses that to make me more into the image of Christ? How can I not rejoice over it? Which leads me to the second will of God is to pray. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I just noticed the clock. They told me I had till 12, right? <laughs> no. Prayer. You know that's God's will. But are you doing it? I don't mean on church on Sunday when somebody stands up here and prays. Because what does it say? Pray without ceasing. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be on your knees 24-7. You, you've, you've heard this. You've been through this part of this scripture before. But everything in my life is to be dependent upon the Father. I need to be, always look to Him. And do you know what an honor and privilege it is? To be able to go to the throne of God and to ask for help, to seek mercy in times of need, and he knows you. He knows your name. You can say, Abba, Father. You know, my dad lived in Tyler until mom passed away, and then he moved down to be with us in San Antonio. But I'd call him once a week just to touch base and tell him what was happening in my life and what was going on in their life. And when I'd pick up the phone, when he'd pick up the phone, when I would call, I'd say, hey, Dad, it's Steve. He always knew who I was. If you'd happened to have my dad's phone number in Tyler at the time and you would have called him and said, hey, Dad, what's going on? He would thought you're crazy because he wouldn't know you because you're not in his family. You've not been adopted into it nor born into it. I was born into it. I could go to my dad and call and say, How, how's life going? And he'd listen. He'd care and all that. Do you not realize that the Father in heaven, it's real, and when you go to him in prayer, he's there for you? And you and I need to be more dependent upon him in everything we do in life. You and I are not the smartest people in all the world. But if I lack wisdom, what do we do? We ask God and he gives to us generously. But let me give you a little sidelight why I think a lot of people don't go to prayer much. I think it's because you're not living a, the life in such a way that God can do what he needs to do. You say, what do you mean? What does James say? The prayer of a prayer of a righteous man. What is a righteous man? A man who lives by faith, accomplishes much. Men in the room, Peter, when he's writing on marriage, I think the greatest statement to men is found in 1 Peter chapter 3 of how you're supposed to treat your wife. You're to live with her, in an understanding way and treat her as a fellow heir of the grace of God so that your prayers will not be hindered. Sometimes I think because of our lives that God, you think, well, God's not hearing anything I say. Well, you have not because you ask not or you have not because you ask for the wrong reasons. See, God's called us to be, live in his will and to do what? To walk in the ways. So how do I do that? By joy, by prayer, by moral purity within my life. By honoring everyone who's in authority above me, plus what I'll add in just a moment. You want to see effectiveness in prayer, then you walk with him. You walk with him in such a way that it works. My dad always told me when I was growing up, at the age of 19, I went to the University of Texas. So that may turn some of you off against the preacher today because I went to UT, but I went there. But my dad said, son, there were so many times that we could, your mom and I would have blessed you in the most amazing way, but you weren't willing to listen or ask. And you just were tough to live with during those time frames. He was still my dad. And a lot of times when I might ask for something, it was always, I need more money. You know how college students are and young men are. We need, we need more money. And, 
that they wouldn't always come through with that, but they knew they couldn't trust me if they gave me the money during those time frames. See, if you and I want this prayer thing to work, then we walk with him in a manner that is pleasing and he will richly bless all that happens. But let me bring it now to the last thing that's the will of God. Thankfulness. Thankful when everything goes well for me. Thankful because I had such a good year this year. No, that's not what it says. And everything give thanks. Good and bad. Not always easy to do, is it? It's more easy to gripe and complain and to be frustrated and everything else. But let me give you a little secret about joy. I didn't quote the whole passage a moment ago when I said the joy of the Lord. It's in Nehemiah. The joy of the Lord is what? Say it again. My strength. Do you not realize that joy is where you get strength to live life? You think about this. When life's not going well for you, when you're frustrated and angry or bitter about something that has happened within your life, you become weak. When you get tired, your weaknesses get manifested profoundly. I can do that on a little simple thing. Some of you in here have tried every diet in the world and you're good at it through breakfast, lunch, maybe early afternoon, but when the nighttime comes, watch out, pantry, here we come. Why? Because you get physically tired. The tired you get along the day, the greater your hunger goes up. You lose your strength and discipline. It's that way in all aspects of life. In all aspects of life. So where do I get the strength to live my life every single day? In my relationship with Jesus Christ. See, this is not something we do on Sunday and just talk about, and the preacher sounds good about it. This is something you do every day when you get up. This is a day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. Those who wait upon the Lord will mount up with strength like eagle. We're going to make it in life. It's going to work. And I need to be rejoicing, which gives me the strength, and the strength gives me the ability to do what? Seek him instead of being flustered and frustrated about everything going on. I go to him and ask for wisdom, help, and guidance. And I give thanks and everything that happens. Guys, you don't realize how blessed you're going to be when you do that. See, what, God, what good has God done for you lately? Well, let me just do Romans 8 real quick. In 28, it says this. He calls all things to work together for good. I touched that already. In verse 29 of chapter 8, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. You're going to be in the image of the Lord Jesus whenever he comes in all his glory. You're going to finish well. You're going to finish well. Philippians 1, 6, he who begins a good work in us will bring it to completion at the coming of Christ Jesus. You're going to finish well. You ought to be rejoicing over that every single day. Life comes to a finish and you're going to stand in his presence and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. What else do we find? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 31. If God's for you, how can I not be thankful every moment? When I was in the national news, we had to put police on duty at the church because of the threats that came against me and Sergeant Monk. So I had heavy armament almost there for a little bit. I didn't want it, but the police force made me take it. I had several policemen in the church, so they put police on duty for a little bit and everything. I was even asked, are you afraid of a shooter coming to your church? I said, no, not, not at Village. I'm more afraid of the shootees. 
as my congregation was carrying during that time frame. So I was very worried about the crossfire that would take place if somebody came into our church. I'm joking, but I was a little bit concerned about that and, and everything. But you know what? I never did worry during that time frame. You wonder why? Because God was for me. Southern Poverty Law Center called me the most virently anti-LGBT preacher in America. I didn't even know what virently meant, so I had to look it up in the dictionary. I was called all kinds of names during those times. That's okay. Who are they? I'm a child of the king. I've been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a part of his family. I've been adopted in. My God's for me. How can I not be thankful every single moment for every single thing that God brings my way? Romans 8.35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Do you realize there is nothing that will pull you out of the hand of God? Do you know how amazing that is? That he will never once abandon you ever in life? My, one of my grandkids is from Russia. My daughter adopted him at the age of two. We will never know his dad, who is Kazakhstani, nor his mother, who more than likely has died from alcohol poisoning since he was born. He was abandoned by family in Russia, but he got adopted by Stephanie and Troy. And I told him the other day, I said, do you know how blessed you are, young man? I get to be your grandpa. Pop Pop gets to be your grandpa, and you got a good family, and we're there for you no matter whatever happens in your life. We will be there every step of the way for you. That's just in an American family adopting a kid from overseas, but I've been adopted in the family of God, and he is for me. He will not leave me nor forsake me and he will never let me be separated for how much he loves me. See, if I know that, how can I get up, not get up in the morning and go, thank you? I look up back on my life at nearly 70 years of age, 46 years in the ministry and I've had the most amazing life in the world. I'm a Southeast Texas boy. I grew up on the bios. I tried to play sports in high school but as I stated earlier, I was little so I never was really good at it although I tried uh, I uh, almost flunked out of UT and finally got my life together and came to Christ at the age of 20 and finished up at Lamar University. And I know my parents thought, oh, this kid, the oldest kid, is supposed to be the one who we're going to be the proudest of and he can't even make it in life half the time. But I look at how God took me from those days and brought me where I am today. It's taken me around the world. Been in the White House three times. I've been in the Speaker's office. I've got to do things I would have never dreamed. I got to preach to people for nearly 30 years. I just look back and it's been amazed. He's taken all the good and the bad and brought it together and used it in the most amazing way. So when I roll up in the morning and it's another retirement day, I go, thank you. This has been an amazing life. I don't know where we're going from here, but we're going to have fun on the years that God has left. See, that's what this is about. Now, I know on Thursday you'll get with your family and you'll have your turkey and dressing, whatever it is you do for Thanksgiving, and somebody around the table will say a quick, thank you, God, it's been a good year. But I want you to know it's been a great life for all of us who are in Christ. And it's got a great finish coming. We have great promises. And so this year, here's what I want you to realize, that when you walk out of here today, you're going to live God's will today. Because you can know it. It's not rocket science. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to have a PhD in theology to know what God's will is. God's will is simply this. I am joyful every moment because I have Christ. And it's more than the church saying it's real. Christ in me, the hope and the certainty of glory. Two, I got the privilege of prayer. And God will hear my prayer. He wants me to walk by faith and trust him. I am thankful for everything that he brings my way. 
I am going to live a morally pure life. I don't care what direction the world goes or what their input or influence are going to be. I'm going to walk right. When I stand in his presence, he's going to say, you did well. And I will honor those who God has given the moment of time to be authority above me. Doesn't mean I agree with them, but I will honor them always by all I do. That's God's will for Steve's life every single day. And the overarching God's will is, I am not ashamed of Jesus. I am not ashamed of him, nor of standing with those who claim him as their Lord and Savior. And together we will live our life fully, giving him honor and glory. And when you and I walk in a manner that's pleasing to him, he will use us in the most powerful of ways. I close with a story. I was given the honor of going to Oxford to to speak. And I am speaking to 39 deans of American universities. The universities are Harvard, Yale, Notre Dame, University of Alabama, University of Michigan, University of Texas. Georgetown University, North Carolina University, USC, UCLA are just some of the schools along with some more Ivy League schools. I am the only evangelical in the room. They are all hardcore to the left. When I got in there, within a couple of days, because we would hear a, prayer, uh, a paper and then we, re- we would debate it. It was on education and, and religion, and that was why I was invited in there. And I would give my opinion. I finally had a guy from Harvard, a debater, a dean of, of, of one of the schools, look at me and said, you're the evil man in the room. You're the one we need to get rid of because of my faith and my views. That's okay. Doesn't affect me a whole lot. Thursday came around, it's my turn. Now, I've worked for a year. I've had this invitation for a year. I've worked for a year to get this ready. And so I'm sitting there in my room at Exeter College in Oxford University. My wife's in in the room with me, and I'm just sitting there. She said, what are you thinking? I said, I'm getting ready to throw my paper away. You're going to what? I'm going to pitch the paper. What are you going to do? I said, I think I know what I'll do. Get, let me get my computer. And so for the next 20 minutes, I work real fast on a PowerPoint presentation. And so I get there, I hand it to the moderator, and I said, this is my presentation. I pulled my paper. I'm going to do something different. So you know what I did? I did a Sunday school lesson. I'm serious. I did a Sunday school lesson to these deans. In one of the most amazing places I've ever been there at Oxford University. You know what passage I picked? I picked 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Not one you'd pick. A couple of you are shaking your head. You know what passage I'm referencing? Now abides faith, hope, love. I said, here's what I bring to the table, guys. I bring faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, I told the group this. I stood there. The moderator was the rector of St. Mary's Cathedral who wrote the book, The Resurrection is Not Real. It was a top 10 bestseller in England that year. And he sits there and gives me the funniest look when I say that. But I said, I bring that to the table. And you think, well, that's what be. So what? I said, well, some of you in here are, are philosophers. Pascal, when he came to know who Jesus was, 
It transformed the life. And he became one of the most brilliant men on the face of the earth. And he wrote Pimsay, one of the classical writings ever that has ever been written because of his faith and trust in Christ. It gave him wisdom and knowledge that he had never gotten any way. And I said, several of you are from Catholic universities. How about Augustine? Augustine, a pretty sharp young man, living a very immoral life till he came to know Jesus by the prayer of his mother. But he came to know Christ. He began to write the city of God, the two cities. And he wrote uh, his uh, confessions, which I still think is one of the most amazing things I've ever read. He influenced the Reformation, which we all came out of. This Catholic leader of his day became the leader of Calvin and Luther and Zwingli. And they read his stuff and they began to put it into practice. I said it transformed him knowing who Jesus was. Jesus impacts education for good. Second thing I bring to the table is love. All I've heard from you guys all week that I've been here is your philosophies and your ideas and your this and that. I've never heard anything about your students. We're concerned about our students. We want our people to do well. We care about who sits in our classrooms. That's what we bring to the table. And the third thing I bring is hope. I haven't heard a thing of hope from any of you guys. We have hope that the God is real, that the promises are real, that there is a future, and that there is eternal life. We bring that to the table. Do not underestimate the impact of hope on a person's life. And when I finished, I intentionally did this at the end. I put a picture of the book, Alice in Wonderland, through these Oxford. Now, it was intentional because the presentation is taking place at Christ College. Christ College is where Alice in Wonderland was written. The author was a professor at Christ College. Alice is a real girl. You may not know that, but she lived there. Her dad was a professor many years ago, a couple centuries ago. See, at, at, at the Oxford universities, there are about 31, 32 universities in the whole system. They have gardens, adult gardens. And children are not allowed in the adult garden. I, I loved it when I was there. I would go to the garden to think, pray, do some writing when I would be there for the two or three times I got to go. So I loved them, but children are not allowed in there. Alice, a little girl, she wants to know what's on the other side of the green door. So the author of Alice in Wonderland made up this wild and crazy story, which some of you read, and some of you have never read it, but you're aware of the story, and that's where it came from. So I said, y'all look at this book, and you go, okay, preacher, he's crazy. These wild ideas, they don't work. There's nothing to it. But then the last slide I hit was a green door in Christ College, which is the door to Alice in Wonderland. I said, before you discount it, no, sometimes the door is real. And I sat down. Well, I was expecting all hell to break loose from all these liberals and this man did not disappoint me. He stood up from Harvard. He was 67 years of age. Probably the meanest guy in the group and chewed everybody out on every paper presented because he was smarter than everybody in the room, he said. And he looked at me and he did this. I have no And started sobbing like a baby. The room was stunned. I was stunned. He broke down sobbing like a little kid who had had all of his toys taken away from him. The moderator didn't know what to do. We stood there 
for two or three minutes, listen to this man cry. And I mean sobbing, not just the tears coming down his face. He got up and he walked out of the room. My dad and my wife and two of my friends who had gone as my little honorage over there were sitting by the door. And as he walked by them, he quietly said, I have nothing of hope to offer anybody. The next day at Blenheim Palace, during a private tour of Blenheim Palace, it's where Churchill was born, I had a chance to sit down with him in the cafeteria and share the gospel with this man. And I don't know what came of all of that. When I got back to my church in San Antonio, I said, you know something? I owe you guys an apology. I forgot how powerful the truth of who Jesus is. I'm in the pulpit every single Sunday. I do this for a living. I have forgotten how powerful the gospel is. And so I apologize for that. And I guarantee you, ever since then, I want you to know I'm not ashamed of who Jesus is. I'm not ashamed if I'm on the football field with the players talking about it, nor ashamed if I stand in a pulpit or I'm out in public or I'm on national television. We have the greatest truths of all the world. And if I can't be joyful about that, if I can't be thankful about it, something's wrong. So on this Thanksgiving, you rejoice and you give thanks, not because it was a good year, but because Jesus is who he says he is. I don't know when he's coming. It's above my pay grade. I always told my members anytime a new book came out, tell them when the second coming was happening. If you buy it, pitch it in the garbage. Go back to your Bible. He's coming, and he didn't tell us when. But when he comes, I'm going. And it's going to be the greatest day in all the world when you and I stand in the presence of our heavenly Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in that day, we'll know it's all been good. It has all been good. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege and honor that you give us to be able to study your word. Thank you for the privilege to be able to come here to Greenville today to be able to share with the people. And I pray, Lord, that you'll watch over and bless them in a very special way as they enter the Thanksgiving season. And, and Lord, I, I, I just pray you'll, you'll, you'll lead and guide this fellowship in the most powerful ways in the days ahead and that they will bring you glory and honor, and that their church will be characterized by joy, it'll be characterized by prayer, it'll be characterized by thanksgiving, not just because it's the week, it's a life. It's a lifestyle. It's based on amazing theological truths. And so, Father, bless them and strengthen them in the days ahead. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.